It's New Hampshire Headlines in WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead, nhtalkradio.com, to get all the back episodes of this program, as well as all the great rest of the great stuff we have going on over at the station, including Kale and Company, the New England Take, and a whole bunch of health shows that have recently joined our airwaves. This week, excited to be joined once again by reporter Ethan DeWitt at the New Hampshire Bulletin. Welcome back. Glad to be here. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get all of their articles. Great reporting over there from Ethan Hadley and Anne Marie. So the budget's passed. It means it's going to be super quiet over at the State House now, right? Everyone's going to be calm. No one's going to be fighting. There's nothing going to be high tension right up until they leave for summer break, right? I mean, that is always the hope, but as is always uh, the case, it's complicated. Uh, not exactly. So you're right. The House passed. The House and Senate both passed the budget last week. That, you know, is it's not a unprecedented, but it's very, very rare for them to do that without negotiating. So you'd think they would have a calm June because usually June is when they hash everything out on the budget. But uh, there are also outstanding bills that are there's going to be negotiations over. And this is where you enter the season of they call them committees of conference. And this is basically, you know, a bill could be killed. It could pass both chambers and go to the governor's desk or both chambers could uh be so dissatisfied with what the other chamber did the senate might be mad at what the house did or vice versa that they want to go to negotiations because they want to save the bill but they don't agree with what the other side did and they want to try to find a resolution so that's where we're at now um fortunately they started with hundreds of bills and the number of bills that they're going to be negotiating over over the next week i believe is less than 30. so uh i think you know, that's manageable, but what you'll see in each one of those cases is a bill that started off as one idea by one rep who put it in there and changed a lot over the process because every time a committee gets their hands on a bill, they can add or, or subtract things. So what you'll see during those negotiations are, uh, you know, some, some big topics being discussed, even if the budget hasn't put to bed. Yeah, as we saw, especially in this this last term, that many lawmakers will just submit like a super high level idea as a bill, get a couple of people to sign off on it, and assume it's just going to be debated and actually be made into something somewhat useful and uh, possible to be legislated on down the road after everyone meets about it. Yeah, and so there's a lot of examples of uh, you know bills that might have been thought to be dead that are sort of brought back. Um, this is also a process where people people can put last minute uh, ideas in. So, for instance, uh, last month the governor made an announcement that he would be in support of legalizing cannabis, but only and this so this was a, a very new announcement for him. Uh, but the condition was that it had to be a state-run program. And I think we've talked about this. Um, and so he made that announcement and the Senate said, okay, well, this, we've been long skeptical of legalizing, but let's put together a study commission to look at how this model might work. And so in order to do that, they had to add an amendment onto an existing bill. That existing bill has nothing to do with cannabis legalization. It does have to do with cannabis. The uh, bill that they would add the amendment onto, which I believe is House Bill 611, would um, expand who can access the medical marijuana program that the state uh, does have legal. And basically right now, if you have um, severe pain, then you can act, get cannabis um, under the law, but only if other 
treatments didn't work for you. So effectively, you have to try things like opioids. And if they don't work for you, then you can use cannabis. So this would be striking that out. If you have severe pain, you can start with cannabis. Um, and so this is an idea that both the Senate and the House agree with. But the Senate wants to add in this commission to uh, study the governor's proposal for legalization. Again, totally separate issue. And the House has an issue with that addition, and they would like to negotiate over it. So that's an example of how this works. It's a lot of horse trading. A lot of like, okay, you want this, well, we want this. Why don't we um, try to put them together? And there's a few other things. Well. So, I mean, the Libertarian crew and the Republican Party are not a fan of Sununu's idea. They have talked out repeatedly that they do not want the state doing the sale of it. They're already not terribly pleased that the state handles liquor the way they do. And, and this is ranging from the Free Staters, Libertarian Party, New Hampshire, and all the different think tanks and groups that are all around it. So it's it, it seems like... May, Somehow Sununu has the perfect bill that the Democrats have passed, but the Democrats don't have enough people on their side to make it happen. Yeah, and so that's an example of this is, you know, the underlying bill here that I just mentioned does something that both sides seem to want, which is to take away what many see as an onerous restriction on who can get medical marijuana, which again is already legal. Um, so that'll be an interesting one to watch next over the next week as they negotiate. Are they going to tank a bill um, that everyone likes the underlying bill because they don't like this study commission. I doubt that, but I mean, we'll have to see how that plays out. There's a few other interesting ones. So um, there's something called the gay panic defense, or that's that's what uh, it's colloquially called, sometimes the LGBTQ defense, panic defense. And essentially it's a defense to murder where you can sort of downgrade your sentencing from murder to manslaughter if you can prove that you had some emotional, uh, extreme emotional reaction. Uh, so that's already in law. And, and so it's possible, it's not spelled out in law, but it's possible you could claim currently in New Hampshire that the revelation of the victim's sexual orientation or gender identity prompted you to get into such a state, emotional state of anger that you killed them and that that would be a manslaughter charge and not a first or second degree murder charge. So there is a bill that would end that. A lot of, uh, a lot of New England states have done this. I'm not sure how many across the country have done it. Um, ha but uh, something to specifically put something in statute saying that that is not a defense. It's not a defense. Just the mere fact that you found out that somebody was a different sexual orientation or gender identity or a few other categories than you assumed um, that you need another defense if you want to make it manslaughter and not that. So that is how that bill started. Um, the House that served out with a former Democrat uh, in the House, Sean Filiot, um, he's now turned independent. He uh, sponsored that bill, but then the House watered it down to some, I mean, it's debatable kind of what they did. Uh, you know, they wouldn't see themselves watering it down, but they they changed it so that um, it would mean, it would require um, the, that prosecutors prove that the defendant um, had hostility towards the other person for their gender identity or their sexual orientation, which is different than proving that they were notified of the person's gender identity and went into a rage. Um, so the, that change uh, was made by the House. The Senate w actually wants to go back to the way the original Democratic bill was. Uh, and so the Senate is saying, let's go back to the original language and the house says no so they're at odds over that one that's that's going to be a really interesting one to watch that i think a lot of people have slept on for the last few months uh, as a big topic um and then one other one 
I can talk about is online voter registration. There's a bill, Senate Bill 70, that uh, would create an election information portal, they call it, and it basically would allow residents to register to vote online um, when when they move to a new town. Right now, you have to do that by mail or in person. Um, and so if you are if you have a disability or, uh, you know, for whatever reason can't make it, you have to do it by letter um, and not, it's, there's no online option. So the, most states, New Hampshire's only one of a, 11 states that don't have online voter registration. And this is a bipartisan proposal that came out of the Senate. But what the House did is they passed it, but they added in another unrelated um, piece that, allows the Secretary of State to use federal money that it already gets to help towns buy new voting machines, because a lot of voting machines are aging right now. They were bought, you know, sometimes decades ago and are uh, getting to the end of their life. So this provision is, some might look at it as a poison pill, some might look at it as just a, a, another amendment, but, basically, but the Senate does not like that they've added that in, and that's going to negotiation. So these are the kinds of topics that we are going to watch. Yeah, and you actually have full write-up on the lawmakers considering online voter registration in general. Is that is that different from what you were just discussing? Yeah, no, it's the same bill, um, Senate Bill 70. And so while, again, there is a surprising amount of bipartisanship, there, this has been somewhat of a partisan issue in recent um, years, the idea of online voter registration. This year, uh, it actually has broad support um, in the Senate and among many in the House, too. But it's, again, these last-minute negotiations that it's hard to tell whether this will tank a bill or whether it's just sort of posturing or bluffing. So we'll have to see. Um, this is pretty interesting because if it passes, then it would be in effect before the presidential primary, you know, obviously the Republican one being the one to watch. And that would allow people to change their party affiliations uh, online, which is a big uh, thing that, that people, you know, are interested in doing, especially when they vote in a primary. They want to go back to being unregistered. Uh, so this would allow them to do that online. It would allow them to request absentee ballots online. They'd still have to mail them in, but they could request the absentee ballot online and they could register. So, you know, you see every time there's a there's a primary, I think there's a lot of people who may not have voted before or may have just moved since they last voted who want to take part in that presidential primary. So this, this whether or not th these negotiations go well or not will affect whether there is online registration by the presidential primary next February. So that's one of the topics. This really goes to show the impact of time over what legislation is possible, because I, I would imagine this would not have been able to fly before the uh, 2020 election when uh, you're having executive, when you're having a national party leadership saying, don't trust the any of these mail-in systems, don't trust any of these online systems. It seems like finally people are beginning to kind of simmer down and actually take a look at what's actually going on with these systems, because it's it's not all run by uh, weird uh, Venezuelan companies. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty surprised by it too, um, and again, we'll just have to see where it goes. I know there are some in the House that don't love it, and that might be what's behind some of their the last minute amendment, and that might be what crumbles the bill, but we'll see. They have a week to figure it out. So, All right, so let's go over to this uh, other article that you actually co-wrote with reporter Hadley Barndollar, also over there at the Bulletin. New Hampshire considers cannabis legalization. Economic justice is fading from view. Uh, fascinating uh, story about the, the human element of these laws. Sure, yeah. So this idea came from looking, hearing about other states and how they've legalized cannabis as 
everybody probably knows by now, every one of our neighbors, including Canada, has legalized. So that gives you a, a few different models for how to do that. And one thing that hasn't really been talked a lot about in New Hampshire, but that other states are pursuing, is looking at what prohibition, you know, if you're moving to legalization, looking at what prohibition did when it was in effect and who it affected. Uh, and so there are a lot of communities, particularly people of color, um, who are affected uh, more that by prohibition than, than other communities. Uh, for instance, uh, in New Hampshire, there, you're four, more, four times more likely to be arrested for a cannabis-related um, charge if you are black in New Hampshire than if you're white. Those are according to police statistics. Uh, and so that's an, an example, and, and those statistics kind of you know, carried over in other states. So the idea that other, some other states have done is they've looked at equity measures, and basically they've said, if we're going to legalize cannabis and create a whole new market, we should let some of the people who were most affected by it being illegal um, have the tools that they, that they need to make sure they can participate in this market. So if we're going to legalize, you know, retail sales, then, um, and, and, you know, growing operations within our state, we should put in some measures that allow people from these impacted communities to uh, have the resources they need to get to sort of get ahead. So this is something that um, Vermont has tried, Massachusetts has tried. Um, and Last year in New Hampshire, there was a big coalition of people from all over the political spectrum that met for months. They included Americans for Prosperity on the right, the ACLU on the left, um, a few cannabis industry groups. They worked for months to come up with a framework, and they released one in December. And that framework had some of these measures that I kind of mentioned. They had a, they had a fund that would not just uh, go towards people of color, impacted communities, but also small farmers and veterans. And that and the fund would be created so that if we legalize and allowed retail, those people from those categories could get additional resources to try to participate so that we'd encourage small farmers. That was proposed in December as a framework. When that actually was turned into a bill, which was sponsored by both Democrats and Republicans, it was the big bill this year, House Bill 639, most of those measures were taken out. Uh, and so it's just interesting. And, and as you watch the hand progress, that has not these discussions around equity have not been discussed, have not um, really been talked about uh, as the bill has gone forward. And, and that's the same for past efforts in past years. So what Hadley and I did is we looked at other states. We looked at Vermont and Massachusetts and we, and we looked at how that's gone in those states. And it's interesting because both of them went slightly different directions. Vermont was very intentional and had, um, by all accounts, success with this approach in terms of trying to diversify who was in the market. Massachusetts uh, did do so well, uh, to put it mildly. They, they had on paper some of these measures, but they didn't actually fund them. And so what happened in Massachusetts is they do have a cannabis market, but it's mostly large companies that have come in. And if you go down to Massachusetts and you look to try to get uh, cannabis, you'll notice that there are a lot of these big conglomerate companies, none of the really small retail operations that you get. Whereas Vermont was very intentional. They added a lot of provisions, not just around equity, but also around making sure that certain uh, you know, businesses couldn't have too much of the market share. Like you couldn't have too many licenses at once um, and trying to kind of control the market, add these market controls. And as a result, people in Vermont argue they have a better 
market because they have small scale growers and small scale retail, which actually it, it, somebody compared it to craft beer and effectively allowing for these kinds of unique strains to be developed and these unique experiences. And you can have um, facilities that, like in barns because it's Vermont. There's a lot that involve a barn that they'll have music acts. They'll have a little partner with all these organizations and kind of do these innovative things that you frankly don't really see in a state like Massachusetts, which just sort of lifted off the cork and allowed everybody to apply, which effectively meant that only the biggest companies with the most money kind of muscled everybody out. So these are interesting discussions that honestly, you don't hear a lot about in New Hampshire because everyone's so focused on just getting it legalized. But it's one of the things that Hadley and I wanted to look at. And we it was a really interesting process when we talked to people. It's fascinating from an economics perspective because you're basically creating a brand new market essentially out of nowhere that has economic support outside of the the jurisdiction of New Hampshire where, yeah, if it's not done right, I mean, it can very easily be just scooped right up. I mean, you, you look at the craft beer market like, you, like you're referencing a second ago, I mean, how many of those are just owned by Anheuser-Busch or Coors or all these different multinational corporations nowadays? Like, it's almost impossible to, to not end up buying something from these companies. One thing I thought was really interesting in Massachusetts is they did have some of these equity measures. So you, if you, you know, if you came from one of these communities, you could get a leg up. What was happening? What I have heard is that companies were finding people to essentially sort of be representatives of their company that were that qualified in these groups, and they were just kind of using them as a means to put a let's put a footprint in this town, in this town, in this town. Instead of so it wasn't really organically, you know, like a, a family of color who wanted to create a business. It was a company that you know found certain people and so it didn't really roll out um, the way anybody intended um, and yeah I think this is an a, a idea that definitely will be debated as as New Hampshire moves along um, it is one thing that obviously the state controlled model doesn't really allow for because it really doesn't allow diverse retail at all because it's all the state but I think what you'll find in New Hampshire um, when it does get a debate is there are a lot of libertarians for whom cannabis is a big priority who don't who wouldn't like this idea of sort of adding, you know, making priority groups who might be able to get access uh, and see and would want something that is just everybody ha is on the same playing field, uh, you know, and are, it can argue for like a, a very much a free market approach. Um, and again, it's going to be interesting to see what we what 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 this kind of idea, how what what kind of life cycle it has, and also what the governor's proposal means as well. Some people we talked to said, even under a state-controlled model like Sununu is proposing, you could still have measures, you know, you're still going to have growers um, that could, you know, so that could be one way to introduce some sort of, they, it's called often economic justice, you know, providing opportunities for people who've really been impacted by prohibition. Um, but a lot of that is so theoretical, and we don't even know if there's the political will to even pass what Sununu wants, so, you know. Well, we'll have to wait and see because it's that the debate for this is not going away anytime soon. That's for sure. Until so, even when it's legalized, I I don't I don't assume this is going to be a, a settled matter. Let's say legalized, but what exactly it looks like in the New Hampshire economic landscape and legal landscape, it will be fascinating. So, reporter Ethan Dewitt, thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad to be on. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more from him, as well as Hadley and Anne Marie, who join the show uh, most Fridays right here on WKXL in the morning, which broadcasts Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. Uh, NHTalkRadio.com to get all our episodes on demand. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten. We'll talk to you next week.